First Thessalonians is a great place for us to start. It's a reminder of why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, Paul says there that when we receive the word of God, we accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So we're not here to hear man's ideas or the ideas of the world. We're here to hear, to hear from God directly. So we look forward to uh, hearing what he has to say for us. Uh, this should be a dialogue. I often think about this, and I heard this from a, another preacher. What's going on right now, sometimes we think of as a lecture, so I'm speaking to you. Uh, it really should be a dialogue, but it's not a dialogue between you and me. It's a dialogue between you and God. Because as you listen, you should be asking God to show you how he would speak into your life. You should be interacting with the word that we are hearing and let God speak to you. And if you have questions or wrestlings or you're not sure, you can ask God that. He's big enough to take your questions. So it should be a dialogue. There's a mystery that still baffles me, and it's one that my wife and I have talked about many times over the years, and she and I are in different places on this, and it's likely that we'll go to our graves not fully agreeing about this. Some of you like to start a book and then jump to the end. Right, we already got a hand here. How, how, many, how many are here like that? I mean, I'm not gonna shame you or anything, I'm just uh, interested. So you, you like to start a book, then you jump to the end because you need to know who's still there at the end because you're not gonna enjoy it if you don't. So because you read the end, okay, Mary's still going to be there, and it's okay, so I can read through, and I'm going to be okay. I never understood that. I, I, if you're going to read a book, you read it from the beginning to the end. Well, as much as I think that's a silly idea, this week and next week, we're going to do just that. We're going to look at the beginning of the book this week, and then next week, we're going to jump to the end of the book. And the goal is to better understand what the Bible is all about. Because understanding the beginning and the end will make sense of the middle as you read through. So like I say, as silly as I think that is, it really works here because understanding where we came from and understanding where we're going helps us understand the story that God tells from Genesis to Revelation. And what a great start that Justin gave us last week uh, I was really a little nervous when he said, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, because that's the passage I was going to be teaching from. I said, oh boy, I'm going to have to start all over again. But as it turns out, and he and I had no idea what the other one was planning, uh, but I think God planned that. And he planned that he should teach from the same passage that I am, but with a different focus. So we're going to be starting in Genesis 3. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3 because that's where we're going to be spending uh, most of our time uh, this morning. So as you turn there, I would just like to pause for another moment, another word of prayer as we dig in. Open my mouth, Lord, to speak wonderful things from your word, and open our eyes, Lord, to see wonderful things from your word, Open our ears 
Lord, to hear wonderful things from your word and open our hearts, Lord, to receive wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a background, I'd like to set the stage a little bit. I'm going to briefly summarize some major sections of scripture. Genesis 1 and 2 talk about the creation. God creates all that there is, this world, the entire universe, everything that there is. He creates all that there is out of nothing, including the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. And he places Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden in which two trees are specifically mentioned, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 2, 16 and 17 records God's clear warning and instructions to them. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I picked this picture of, isn't that beautiful? I mean, I just, and the Garden of Eden would make this look like a trash heap, I think. Uh, I mean, this is beautiful. And the Garden of Eden was, I'm sure, beyond our wildest imagination. But, I mean, this is beautiful, right? Can you just picture yourself? I, I can't figure out if I'm wading in the water or if I'm walking in the grass or smelling the flowers or... It's just a beautiful thing to think about. That's where God placed Adam and Eve. Well, in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, we read about what's called the fall. The serpent enters the scene, and we find out later in the scriptures that the serpent is actually the devil himself. It is Satan. And he tells Eve that God is cheating them by preventing them from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says God is lying about the death, about death being the consequence of disobedience. And he says that life will be better for them if they ignore God's command and live their life their way and not God's way. And we find in verse 6, that's exactly what happened. Eve and then Adam deliberately reject God and his loving care for them. They disobediently eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are immediate consequences to their disobedience, which can be summarized basically as the ruin of every aspect of the entirety of creation. They just ruined the entirety of the universe. Their relationship with each other is severely damaged. Their relationship with God is severely damaged. The creation itself, the universe itself, is severely damaged. We could qualify this as a disaster as a catastrophe. I'd like to pause for a moment. For those of you who are parents, how would you respond if your child totally disrespected you and rejected you? What if your child clearly disobeyed you and ended up ruining all that you had worked for? How would you respond? What about all of us? When we disobey God, when we sin, what do you do? How do you believe God is going to respond to you when that happens? So with this background, we want to look at how God responds to this disaster that Adam and Eve brought on themselves and on the entire creation. We're going to pick up the story in Genesis 3, which is the moment after they eat the fruit. I'm going to read this passage 
And as I do, I'd like you to watch carefully how God responds. Watch carefully how God responds. And do not be lulled into not listening carefully because you're familiar with this. Oh, yeah, I've read this before. I'd like you to ask God to show you something new about himself or about yourself or about our world. So I'm going to read Genesis 3, verses 7 to 24. And again, we're watching for how God responds to his children now ruining his entire creation. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he stretch out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. So God responds to his fallen human beings. We are going to focus on four of his responses. And remember, these responses are after their sin, after they have rejected him, after they have disobeyed him. The first thing he does is God pursues closeness. God pursues closeness. Look at verses 8 and 9. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Try to imagine this. Imagine this beautiful garden in the cool of the day. Don't you just love that? I grew up out in the country, and a couple weeks ago I was able to take a, just a wonderful walk with my son-in-law, who also grew up in the country. The day was 
was waning, the sun was going down, the coolness in the air, you could smell the fresh mown hay in the air. Just, it's, a, it's my favorite time and place to be, I think, in the entire world, in the cool of the day. Imagine you're being in this garden in the cool of the day, and God is there walking with you. We can barely imagine. What a beautiful picture of God's closeness to them, walking with God in this beautiful garden. What's happening here? He is pursuing relationship with them even after they rejected him and are hiding from him. This has been his desire from the beginning to be in intimate relationship with his people. And God asked them a question. Where are you? It's not a question seeking information. He knew what had happened. He's God. It's a question looking for honesty, looking to draw them out. Basically, why are you hiding from me? I like to think that there was some deep sadness in his heart because they were hiding from him. He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day to be with his people, and they were hiding. But notice this. After they rejected him, after they ruined everything and were hiding from him, what does God do? He pursues closeness. He pursues to walk with them and to draw them to himself. Well, what's the second thing he does? The second thing is he pronounces a curse. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And down in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity, hostility, fighting between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He curses the serpent. The word curse means the calling forth of adversity or misfortune or harm. He's calling forth harm, misfortune on this serpent, which we know as the devil. And notice here that the serpent and his evil plan do not have the final say. God has a plan to fix this. God says there will be an ongoing battle between good and evil. You ever wonder one of the reasons our world is the way it is? God says there will be an ongoing battle between good and evil, between those who follow God and those who follow the serpent, at the end of which a descendant of this woman will destroy the serpent. God promises that there will one day be an end to this serpent and his evil. So how does God respond to his children when they clearly disobey him and reject him? He pursues closeness and he pronounces a curse defining the end of all evil. What's the third thing that he does? Let's go down to verse 21 for that one. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Well, if you follow the story, this is a dramatic improvement over the clothes they made for themselves to take care of their problem, to cover their shame. Remember, if you know the story, at the end of creation, at uh, chapter 2, verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The immediate recorded consequence of their disobeying God was that they were now ashamed of each other. They were now ashamed of each other, so ashamed that verse 7 says, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Fig leaves, high quality material that's going to stand the test of time. And loincloths, 
doesn't necessarily cover everything that needs to be covered. But that's what they did. It was their best effort to fix their problem. And it fell far short of what was really needed. But what does God do? He clothes them himself to cover the shame of their sin. And when we think of this, at least I do, don't we have an image of some primitive caveman clothing when we think of the animal skins that they were wearing? But author Megan Hill says this. She says, what we wear tells a story about who we are. When God tailored the first clothes for Adam and Eve, they were clothes that I'm convinced were beautifully made and not at all the ragged, primitive outfits pictured in Sunday school materials. He was expressing something about who they were, fallen and yet tenderly cared for by God. The clothes that God made for them were much more durable, protective, useful, and beautiful than the flimsy fig leaf coverings they made for themselves. So how does God respond to his children when they reject him and disobey him? He pursues closeness to draw them in. He pronounces a curse to defeat the evil, and he provides a covering for their shame and for their nakedness. Well, let's look at the fourth thing that he does. God prevents catastrophe. I call this section, God prevents catastrophe. Now, if you're paying attention, you should be saying, wait a minute, I thought you said the catastrophe already happened. They've already broken the entire universe. How much more of a catastrophe for there, could there be for God to prevent? Well, let's look at, or actually I'm inviting you to look at it with me. Look in verse 23 and 24. It says, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. Not only sent him out, look in verse 24, he drove him out, drove him out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He drives them out of the garden and then puts an angel there with a flaming sword to make sure there is no chance they are ever getting back there again. In the past, in my younger years, this response seemed to me to be overly harsh. God, really? Driving them out? Cherubim? Flaming sword? Prevention? But notice God's reason for driving them out in verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He doesn't want them to live forever. But wait a minute, didn't he want them to live forever? Why change that now? Well, what is their current state of being? They have a broken relationship with God. They have broken relationships with each other. They have broken relationships with the creation. Life for them in this broken, sinful world will soon be associated and as I went through this list, I added a few more today. I just, it goes on and on. Life in this broken, sinful world will be associated with pain, anger, disappointment, disease, disagreements, fighting, death, abuse, sorrow, tears, injustice, bigotry, narrow-mindedness, epidemics, 
pandemics, immorality, racism, genocide, natural disasters, hatred, violence, cruelty, human trafficking, warfare, killing. I just thought of another one. Economic disaster, gas prices at $6 a gallon or more. There's a suffering that comes into our world because of this. Living in this world is filled with those things and more, as we know too well. Imagine living forever. Forever. Forever in this broken world with no hope of anything ever changing. That would be a far worse catastrophe than the one they just brought about. God did not want them living forever in this state of sin and separation from him. And in his, in his mercy, he prevents that from happening by expelling them from the garden and preventing them from eating of the tree of life. It seems like a harsh consequence, but it was a deep act of mercy and kindness and grace so that they and we would not live forever and ever and ever in this sin-cursed and broken world. Because... He had a plan to rescue them. He had a plan to rescue them. So this is God's response to Adam and Eve's sin and its destructive consequences. He pursues closeness. Adam and Eve were hiding. God came to find them. God pronounces a curse. Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent. God promised the serpent's destruction. God provides a covering. Adam and Eve tried but failed to cover their sin. God covered it for them himself. And God prevents catastrophe. Adam and Eve were separated from God. God prevented that from becoming an eternal reality. Well, there's a much larger picture for us to see here in 2022. What happened in the garden as many thousands of years ago was certainly significant for Adam and Eve, but God's response reverberates down through time. His response in the garden is the first shadows of greater realities to come. A shadow is an incomplete reflection of a real object. So there's a shadow. It's reflecting something. We get a sense of what that something might be. Any guesses? Did I hear bird? All right, I hear somebody saying, oh, it's just somebody holding up their hands, right? So we don't know, there's a shadow, but we know something is behind it. As I'm saying, God's responses to his children in the garden are shadows of what he is going to be doing throughout history, and we wanna find the reality behind those shadows. So that's possible that that could be one of the realities behind these shadows, but it turns out that that is the reality behind this particular shadow, but you don't know what is behind the shadow until the real thing appears. And that's the image we want to get as we're reading through the scriptures. There are shadows of what God is doing through history that are going to be completed when the real thing comes. So let's go through those four things again, but with this in view. So God pursues closeness. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, As you read through the Old Testament, you will see this theme constantly. God makes himself known to his people. God uses words like, walk with me, return to me. When God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, he has them build a tent, a tabernacle, where he will live with them. 
When the people are settled in the promised land, God has them build a temple, which is a more permanent place for them, for him to live with his people. And the tent and the temple give a little more definition, but they too are part of the shadows pointing to a greater reality. And what is that greater reality? Jesus is the full reality that all these shadows are pointing to, the fulfillment of God looking for Adam and Eve. When God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, he was looking for them, not to destroy them, but to rescue them. Luke 19, 10, Jesus says, For I, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. That's what God was doing in that garden, to seek and to save the lost. John 1.14, John says of Jesus, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He tented among us. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's desire to live in close relationship with his people now and forever. So much so that the Bible describes him as living within us who believe in him. So as you read the Bible, watch how God continually desires to live in intimate relationship with his people and how he continually moves towards Jesus Christ. Well, what about you and me? When we sin, don't we try to hide? Thinking that somehow God can't find us? Hoping that he doesn't find us? Thinking that he shouldn't find us? But when you sin, God is not like us. He does not angrily send us to our room until we get our act together. He does not reject us. When you sin and are ashamed, what is God doing? He's looking for you. He's walking in the garden looking for you, to be near you. And nothing can change this. He has promised to never, ever leave you or lose you. Never. Ever. Well, God pronounces a curse. Remember, God promises that one day a descendant of this woman will destroy the serpent. Well, if you were Eve, what would you be thinking about this promise? Adam, I'm pregnant. We're having a son. Could this son be the one who's going to destroy the serpent? When that son was born and did not fulfill the promise, can you imagine every woman after her would be wondering if her son was the one to fulfill the promise. When you read through the Old Testament, do you ever wonder why there's endless lists of genealogies? And Joe had Sam, and Sam had Harold, and Harold had Javier, and Javier had on and on and on and on. Do you ever wonder why those are? At the very least, they trace Eve's descendants until we find the one who will destroy the serpent and his evil. And as you read through the Old Testament, you will see, you read with an eye to follow this, who will this descendant be? How will we recognize him when he comes? How will he come into existence? And then when you read the New Testament, what happens to the genealogies? They end. There are two. There is one in Matthew 1, and there is one in Luke 3. Well, what's going on? After all these genealogies in the Old Testament, they just stop? Yes. Because where do both of those genealogies end? With Jesus. With Jesus. He is the fulfillment of those shadows. He is the descendant of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Jesus is that long-awaited descendant of Eve who came to destroy the devil. 
He is the fulfillment of this promise made those many thousands of years ago. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, to redeem his people. I read that verse, I say, of course Paul, he was born of woman, aren't we all? His point was going back to this promise that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, basically to crush the serpent's head. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil and the evil he brings will one day be totally destroyed. And how did he do that? By dying on the cross for our sins to suffer the death that we deserve so that he could give us new life. And then he rose from the dead to conquer death. So what about you and me? When you are assaulted by the evil of this world, Remember that God knows, and one day that evil will be completely destroyed. When we, go th- when we went through that list earlier of the things that are part of our world, our broken world, one day those things will no longer be. God has promised. Jesus came to destroy the devil and his works, and he will not fail. So do not give in to despair. Trust that God will bring you safely through. What's the third one? God provides covering. After Adam and Eve had sinned, they tried to fix the problem themselves, but then God provided garments of skin to cover their shame. An animal had to be sacrificed to provide this covering. It was an animal skin. God had to take an animal, kill that animal, take those animal skins, and create this beautiful clothing to cover them. As you read the Old Testament, keep alert to this two-part shadow winding its way through the Bible. God himself will provide the remedy for our sin. God himself will provide the remedy for our sin because our efforts are useless, empty, and ineffective. And the remedy that God supplies is rooted in the sacrifice of an innocent animal who dies in the place of the sinner. And when we get to the New Testament, guess what we find? Jesus is the fulfillment of those shadows. John 1.29 The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That innocent animal sacrificed for us that our sin may be covered. And Paul says in Romans 13, 14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on. It's the language of clothing. Cover yourself with the clothing of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Jesus is the innocent one who died in our place so that our sin and shame could be covered. And again, what about you and me? Well, when we sin, I don't know about you, but don't you try to fix it yourself? As if somehow we could make up for it by all our efforts? Don't we try to cover it ourselves? I'm reminded uh, when our kids were young, uh, my wife and I, I forget which one of us it was, went into our master bathroom in the house, and sitting on there was a broken picture frame. Uh, The child who broke the picture frame somehow figured that that's a good place to hide it, (laughs) was in our bathroom. Uh, So we were able to track down the perpetrator and and deal with this and and hopefully instruct that uh, trying to cover your sin, cover your 
failures is not a good thing to do and it's not going to work anyway because you will be found. But don't we do that? You're eating something you shouldn't be eating and all you're concerned about, and this has happened to me, I'm eating something I shouldn't be seeing. I'm not concerned that God is watching, I'm concerned where my wife is. <laughs> I don't want her to catch me. Totally ignoring the fact that God is watching this whole thing go down and listening to my faulty reasoning in the first place. But isn't that what we do? We hide. We try to cover it up. We think that God doesn't know. Or we try to fix it. All right, God, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to be a good little boy, and I'll make, up, make it up to you. Don't we do that with God? Remember, there is no sin that you can commit that God cannot forgive. No shame that you can have that God can't cover. Jesus is a safe refuge. If you uncover your sin instead of hiding it, God will cover it for you. And we do that by confession and repentance. We do that by saying, God, here I am again. I did that thing, thought that thought, said those words that I should not have said. Please forgive me. Not because I deserve it, but because Jesus died for me. And help me by your grace. Help me by your strength to not do this again, to change. I want to change. I don't want to be like this. Jesus is that safe refuge. He can forgive because of Jesus' death and resurrection. He can change you because of Jesus' death and resurrection. God, God has done everything to cover your sin and shame. Oh, anybody remember the fourth one? God prevents catastrophe. God made sure there was no way that they were getting back to the tree of life so that they would not live in eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal pain. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life instead of eternal death. Jesus is the fulfillment of that throwing them out of the garden to prevent them from living eternally in death. He came that they should not perish, but have eternal life came that we should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus restores the eternal life that was lost in the garden because of sin. Jesus died to rescue you from that eternal death and give you eternal life. And if you know Jesus as your savior, you can rest that God has indeed rescued you from the worst catastrophe possible. An eternal death, the separation from God and all that is good. I've once heard it said, and I believe it to be true, this world is all the hell that believers in God will ever experience. And this world is all the heaven that unbelievers will ever experience. Because as bad as this world is, there is lots of good, because God is here and his grace is here. But in, in a place where there is no God, there is no good. So even the good that is here will be gone. So God has rescued you from that worst catastrophe possible. Let us be thankful. Let us be grateful. Let us ask God to how to live in a way consistent with that. But there's also an urgent warning here that I'm going to deliver with all my heart. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, you are on the edge 
of a catastrophe that is far worse than anything that you have heard of, experienced, or can imagine. If you die without trusting Jesus as your Savior, you will enter an eternity of separation from God and from all that is good, living forever in sorrow, pain, shame, regret, darkness. God threw Adam and Eve out of the garden to prevent that from happening. God sent Jesus so that if we believe in him, that will prevent that from happening. But he's not going to hold that one off forever. There will come a time when we all die. And if we die without Jesus, we will die without God. We will die eternally outside the garden. So today, now, is your opportunity to avoid the catastrophe of eternal death and receive the eternal life that God has offered in Jesus. And it's a simple transaction of saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner separated from you, but I believe that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead to give me new life. I ask you to forgive me and come into my life and help me to live for you. That will put you, change you from the path of eternal death to the path of eternal life. Well, let's conclude this with some final thoughts. How great and merciful is our God who can work such a perfect plan to rescue us who have made such a mess of his creation. And we still make a mess of his creation in our relationships. How great and merciful is our God to work out that plan without flaw over the centuries and the millennia. He is fulfilling all of those shadows that we see in the Old Testament. How great and merciful is our Savior is our Lord Jesus who died our well-deserved death so that we might live with him forever, no matter how much of a mess we make of our lives. And how great is the Bible, which is the story of God providing for, protecting, and rescuing his people. At the center of that story is a garden, a tree, and a promised Savior. And God responds to his fallen human beings with a loving heart full of grace and mercy. God pursues closeness. God pronounces a curse. God provides covering. And God prevents a catastrophe. So where are you in this story? If this is how God treated Adam and Eve when they totally ruined the entirety of the universe, why do you think he will respond more harshly to you who couldn't possibly ruin things any more than they did? Run to God, not away from him when you sin. He's looking for you. He's looking for you, for your good, and will cover your sin if you ask him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great reminder from Genesis 3. that your heart is not a heart of anger or vengeance, revenge, rejection. Yours is a heart of love and mercy and grace which caused you to pursue closeness and to provide a covering for your wayward children. It also led you to pronounce the final ultimate curse on the evil of this world and to prevent the catastrophe of people 
having to live in eternity apart from you. So I ask, Father, that when we hide, remind us that you are looking for us. And when we sin and are ashamed, you cover us. You are truly worthy, Lord, of our highest praises. You are holy, perfect. So, Father, I pray that you would fill us with the wonder of your grace and mercy and love as we reflect on these things now, as we walk with you in our daily lives, and as we read your word. Help us, Lord, to read it with new eyes, to look for these shadows, to look how these things are being worked out by your perfect loving hand through the centuries so that we can have confidence that you will completely fulfill these things for us. In Jesus' name, amen.